Hello, I'm James Young, and this is Out of Control, the unofficial Premier League Years podcast. Joining me this week to discuss all things 1993-94, to the Charlatans, Manchester United, retaining the Premier League for the second season in a row and doing the double, Everton's last day heroics, and of course the handbrake turns of uh, the IRA and uh, plenty more other things that you probably wouldn't expect to be in a football show is the wonderful Mark Godfrey, host of Vincera, the Italian 90 podcast, uh, amongst others. So do give him a follow on Twitter. He'll plug it at the end of the show, uh, but just search for him on there. You'll find it. But this is a great episode, and uh, there's plenty of great stuff in here about a, a vintage Premier League season. So uh, we are now joined by Mark Godfrey, uh, the wonderful host of Vincera, the story um, of Italia 90, the drop for the set pieces and plenty of other uh, great podcasts as well. It's, uh, it's a great to have you on, Mark, to discuss all things 93 to 94. That's a pleasure, James. Thanks very much for asking me on. So what, what were you doing then in the, the summer of 1993? Manchester United had uh, won their first Premier League title since the 60s and uh, look, were looking like they were going to uh, retain their crown again. And, uh, what, was, what, what were you doing in the, the gorgeous... June and uh, July summer before this season commenced. Um, I I'd been at Sunderland as a as a uh, junior player, and I think they kicked me out because I wasn't good enough. So that was me at sort of sixteen, seventeen, uh, and then I decided I was going to go up in the air force. So I went and did um, uh, some training to be a pilot, and that actually ran over into the first part of the season, which got because I was in the sixth form. That was me mm. then going from lower sixth into the upper sixth. And because I went away and learned by a plane, um, I was uh, I was out of school for the first month of the 1993-94 season, which was nice. Mm. Um, so I'm guessing, not having I'm guessing to you, sit uh, in that. you didn't get to see much of uh, Sky's sort of alive and kicking sort of Eric Cantona coverage at the start of the season there if uh, you were in the Air Force. Um, well, I, w- I was only doing the training mm. and I was 17 and well, when I went away to Scotland, I was with a bunch of other recruits who were going to do the same thing. Um, and we hadn't got Sky at home by then. We got, we got Sky in the October of 1993. I remember that very, very vividly. But because we were all 17-year-old lads, sort of away from home for six weeks or whatever it was, we were in Perth in Scotland with money in our pockets, nobody, at, nobody keeping check on us when we weren't doing whatever we, was, we were supposed to be doing. So we were able to nip off to the pub um, and watch quite a lot of years, because this was very early years of the Premier League. So we were able to, to go and get drunk and um, and watch watch some of these Sky Sports games. Like I said, we, we didn't get the Sky in our house till, till a month after the season started. Well, I think it was still obviously still quite a new thing because, I mean, I'm obviously a bit younger than you are, but I don't remember getting Sky in my house until 2006, 2007, because it was right. such a new thing. And yeah. it was quite expensive as well. And there was quite a lot of reluctance of, I'm not going to pay to watch football and that sort of thing. It was a massive, massive gamble for them to put all this money into a sport that throughout the 80s, especially, especially amongst certain parts of the establishment, had just been ridiculed as a, a thugs game almost. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, you can't overstate. I know it's it's been done to death in various articles one way or another probably by me as much as anybody, but it really was a, it was a rebirth, a rebrand of football, which probably kicked off um, sadly with, with Hillsborough. That sort of really was the ignition point of, um, of having to change English football. But then of course there was Italian 90, which of course, which, you know, is, is close to my heart. Um, and, and then the Premier League sort of, you know, just it exploded. Then like you say, Sky took a massive gamble um, getting involved in that and, and really, <laughs> 
you know, that really could have gone sideways for them. But yeah, it turned out turned out very different. And look what we've got now. Yeah, and the, the first game then of this after, we have a, a classic um, Sky montage, completely over the top to Lenny Kravitz. I'm going to go my way. And then we get this massive Sky blimp that appears. And uh, there's like a great advert with Paul Ince and everyone singing Alive and Kicking and Eric Cantona's in there saying the Premier League, magnifique. Just one trophy to us, so no easy games. A lot of good teams this year. La Premier League, the magnifique. Um, and Norwich versus United is the first game. And it's it's interesting now, looking back, there wasn't really, obviously you still had big teams then, but it was so much more open as a league where a team like Norwich can finish pretty close as title contenders the season before. And they're still being considered potential title challengers at this point the following season. And you just think now, you'd never really be able to get a club like Norwich. Obviously, we, we had Leicester, but that was sort of a, a rarity to be able to push for a, a Premier League title. Yeah, I think... Uh... When when um, do my sort of research and looking back at this season uh, for the podcast, I looked at the league table and of course in the um, in the episode itself it shows you the um, the league table at various points, and it is it is like a, a who's who of early nineties football. And it just shows you how much a lot of the big clubs just couldn't get their act together. You know, Man United off obviously a, a champions and they they start off really well in that season they've got Blackburn who'd thrown a lot of money of course uh, trying to be successful Newcastle had just come up but then you had like QPR were up there for a significant portion of the season Norwich exactly like you said Aston Villa had been come close the year before and were up there and then you know the, the names in the top half versus you who you were like Tottenham were in the bottom half Everton were in the bottom half uh, Manchester City were in the bottom half um, a lot of big uh, Liverpool spent a yeah. significant portion of the season in the bottom half. Um, yeah, well, it, as you say, it was a much more um, meritocratic time for English football. But of course, uh, that didn't last too long. Once um, the big clubs did did realise if they got their act together, the riches were there to be had. I mean, even even Swindon, for example, now who obviously have had their sort of up and downs in in the football league, but they were in there as well. It was there. Um, one of their first seasons uh, that they got promoted in and straight away, 5-0 defeats to Liverpool. But then they end up coming towards the end of the season and almost end up sort of stopping United, winning the title by drawing with them. And it just seemed it was a lot more um, sort of excited and open, like you were saying. But we'll sort of get into more of the, um, the episode. And what I love, especially about Sky at this stage, there's still sort of keys in his pomp. And uh, there's so yeah. many great Partridge moments throughout Premier League years. But the best one that I saw on this episode was Ian Wright singing Do the Right Thing. We don't really get players do novelty singles no. as much these days. And uh, <laughs> Keyes comes in and he says, eat your heart out, Fraser and Ali. Just to show up, I keep up with the pop scene. <laughs> yes, eat your heart out, Fraser and Ali, which is just to prove I'm up with the pop scene. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't suppose Keys is. Uh, you won't remember him on breakfast TV either. I no, do. I, I just... remember Keys for sexism and football, basically, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. And again, you are. I think you are a significant amount of years younger than I am. So I remember all of this. How he was then, like you say, Partridge before Partridge, Maidley before Maidley. He was. Um, and, and how he was on, on Sky, all chummy and matey and, and, you know, king of the banter. I don't think he was any great. I think he was quite diff, uh, quite similar, sorry, on um, on TVAM. And, I mean, this, se- this season is almost 30 years ago. And he looks he looks like mid-40s 
or whatever he uh, then. But he can't have been. He can't have been that old. Well, he, he's never. He's, he's never looked younger, has he? That's the thing. I think his no. suits had like an add like another ten years on top of his age as well. <laughs> yeah. That's true, and there's a there's a bit later in the show. I don't know if I'm if I'm jumping ahead here mm. slightly. Where you've got Robbie Fowler, yes, in some kind of <laughs> skit where he's poking fun at him, and he says, you know, he's taking the taking the piss out of his his stupid jackets and ties and and his hairy hands, and you you know, he's in his jacket. He wears the worst jackets anyone's ever seen, and I wish he'd wear longer sleeves to hide his hairy arms and hands. I mean, if that doesn't, I'm, I'm probably, I'm sure I've heard stories that, you know, he used to shave his hands before, during and after Sky broadcasts. And I broadcast, I think the original Sundays, they used to last from about two o'clock in the afternoon. The game would kick off at four, obviously finish around six. And it would go on for about, you know, these things mm. were like six hours. So no wonder he had to shave his hands three times during the afternoon to, to you know, create sort of semblance of him being human. There's a, there's a great Ron Atkinson interview as well, and we sort of don't really get characters like him mm. anymore, for good or for bad. And Martin Tyler is asking him about sort of his style as a manager and whether he gets unfair criticism. And he <laughs> looks at him dead in the eye and says, I get very annoyed when people like you. People in your industry start bringing that up. And it's just brilliant. You know, it's just, it's great. Those who don't know you at all think of jewellery and champagne and sunshine breaks. But there you go, straight away, you're talking about it. Is that an image that you've cultivated or...? Not really, it's an image you and your people have cultivated, not me. But you've been happy to go along with it? No, nope. never never cultivated, never pushed it, never perused it, just been what I am. But get very annoyed when people like you and people in your industry start bringing that up. Okay. Never gets mentioned that every football team I go to seems to do quite well. We might get on to that. Good lad. Yeah, I... I... I don't know what the what had gone on before they you know started filming, but Martin Tyler just wades in, doesn't he? And he says something. He says like, "So are you all about jewelry and suntans?" Uh, and Big Ron just sort of leans over the desk, doesn't he? And you you think, oh, Christ, this. He, I I thought he was going to clout him. That's I've never seen that interview before, and he just met, he's just got this menacing look. And as you say, he's like defending himself and his his record with his teams and that. And you just. Oh man! I mean, what there's, what there's an interview! One. I think Start it's, to an interview. I think it's the following season where it's the class that you can sit there and you can play with all these silly machines as much as you like. Um, <laughs> and he's just got that in him as a manager, where he just doesn't care. Sort of, sort of a bit of the Brian Cloughs about him. Sort of that sort of not really being media trained and just saying whatever he likes. And I think nowadays, especially um, top managers, are a lot more astute with how they talk to the media. You know, you'd, you'd never really get. I mean, Mourinho used to do it quite a lot, but now like a Klopp or a Guardiola, wouldn't sit there and just slag off the interviewer for five minutes. Mm. Yeah, you got it. You, you know, you saw it with Clough. Because Clough was just like that. And of course, you know, Atkinson was, I want to say old school, but he wasn't really old school at that time. He was kind of in his, still in his prime as a manager. It's just, yeah, it, the way Sky started doing the, the coverage and, and, going into the nth degree and doing all these different interviews and trying to find different angles. And of course, being, being owned by uh, the same people who own um, the sun and, and various other tabloid newspapers, there's always a, a slant towards the sensational. Mm. So you wonder if there was, ed- there are, or there were editorial meetings even back then to try and, you know, s- see if they could um, uh, antagonize somebody somehow. And I think big Ron's probably quite a, quite an easy target. And uh, it's funny you should say that because the top news story in September. So normally 
like Premier League years, you know, we're going into September, the season just sort of kicked off. You're expecting like, there's, I, I don't know what happened precisely in October 1994, but I think there's bigger stories that Sky could have gone for as the top lead story for news um, in September, sorry, than Sky going through a multi-channel relaunch and a speech mm-hmm. by Rupert Murdoch is yeah. the top news story. <laughs> season well underway, September saw Sky undergo a multi-channel relaunch. Rupert Murdoch confident of further success. We've seen that a mighty industry is emerging. Politicians like to say that the most important 12-letter word in the English language today is jobs, jobs, jobs. Yeah, yeah, and they do it, and again, again, not to not to jump ahead too much, but they pat themselves on the back a bit later on in, in a new segment. Um, later on in the in the early part of 1990, you think, yeah, I mean, I mean, there were some pretty big stories uh, come up, as I'm sure you're going to mention. But um, yeah, they 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 weren't off um, quick to, you know, to themselves the reach around to, to congratulate themselves on how well they'd done. Mm, and as Chelsea, like you were saying, they get in a bit of sort of coverage in September because they had a bit of a good run at the start of the season. And what I like about this is. Stamford Bridge, I mean, the main sort of stand still looks quite the same, but behind the goal, it's just a completely different stadium with the cars behind it. And it's got like mm. British steel and Euro dollar. It's like, they, it may as well be like a different club to the one that, that got taken over by Abramovich. Yeah. And again, the, the, what, the, you mentioned one end's got the cars and I think the other end is like a building site, mm. I think. Well, a lot um, of stadiums are building sites because of obviously the Taylor Report. Um, mm. You know, there's, there's a bit at the end where... Um, the cop, it's like the last game at the cop, and it's the same with the, the case stand as well at Old Trafford. Uh, that was the last season that was standing there before that got redeveloped. So it sort of felt like it was one of the last seasons before um, everything sort of became quite modernised. Because, like like you say, you know, a lot of the stadiums were being being redeveloped. Yeah, and you also you don't really see empty seats, mm. and haven't empty seats in the English Premier League for twenty years or more, but. Oh, yes, there were redevelopments going on, but you mentioned Chelsea there. Plenty of empty seats in their games. Plenty of empty seats at Leeds games. Plenty of empty seats at, uh, at, at Everton games or whoever it might have been. I mean, you wouldn't... Yes, it, it, you know, we were coming out of the, the dark days of the late 80s and whatever, and, you know, stadiums were getting redeveloped. But um, you, you, the Premier League wasn't the instant success with, with fans, you know, coming in and there were no fan tourism or very little fan tourism then you know people coming from Ireland or Norway or wherever you know, all over the world now where people come to see English football so it's you know it's definitely a an eye-opener when you watch these these things to think yeah it wasn't quite as popular that back then we as we the, maybe like to think the uh, the grit of the sort of old English game of Bruce Grobler and Steve McManaman properly having a go at each other during the Merseyside <laughs> derby and like you just wouldn't see that now no, absolutely not. And uh, as an Everton fan, I, I, I happily watch that over and over again. <laughs> um, and other players as well, like this is just a, a treasure trove of like Panini sticker albums and that sort of thing. Players like Effin Okoku scoring four goals for Norwich and becoming the first player mm-hmm. to score more than three goals in a Premier League game. And this is why Premier League is, is great because there's players like that that you've just completely forgotten about that, that pop up and they're, you know, they're just scoring four goals in a 5-1 thrashing. Yeah, well, okay, yeah. Thanks for mentioning that one. Um, <laughs> I think that, I think that came. It was either the following week or it was the next home game. Funnily enough, to the Merseyside Merseyside derby mm. that you had McManaman and Grobbler having a set to. Um, so yeah, it shows you how quickly fortunes can change. 
And uh, we're into October then. And this is this is the first handbrake turn properly of, of the episode. I mean, 1993, um, we went pretty much um, from, I think it was Ian Rush breaking Liverpool's goal-scoring record into the Siege of Waco. And this time, mm. we've gone from Glenn Hoddle signing Mark Steen into the worst floods for many years. And it's literally within like five seconds. Georgie Thompson's voice has this amazing thing where she can go from and... Uh, Glenn Hoddle signed Mark Steen to uh, help change the fortunes at um, Chelsea and straight away. And there was the worst floods for many years. It's like, what? Glenn Hoddle hoped the goals would start flooding in after signing Mark Steen. I've had confidence in my ability and I've, I've always wanted to prove to, like, myself and I suppose a lot of other people that I could do it on, like, you know, regular basis in the Premier League. While parts of Britain witnessed the worst floods for many years. What is well, I think on? she actually, yeah, she actually says, doesn't she, in, in the in the bit that she says, she says um, they signed Mark Steen for the goal, so the goals can go flooding in, and then Lee, Lee just just you know just scoops nicely into followed by the worst flooding in decades. So, you know, uh, absolute genius, absolute genius. Who and as you say, she's just got that. She doesn't break stride. It's just beautiful. Mm. And uh, this month is famous for the Letizia uh, goal where he obviously took it over a couple of players and volleyed it in. But it's interesting mm-hmm. players from that time now. Letizia is such a strange one because of his like recent misdemeanours that it's mm-hmm. really weird to how to actually... I know you sort of separate mm-hmm. the art from the artist, but it's like... It's bizarre how he's obviously an amazing footballer, but it's almost been tainted a bit by everything that he's done recently. Yeah, well, it's the same as having to apologise as soon as you say that you like the Smiths, mm, isn't it? Yeah. Um, because of the, you know, the 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 sort of um, uh, the tainted character that Morrissey's become. But yeah, uh, you mentioned about that game against Newcastle in particular. I think he actually scores two yeah, cracking goals well. in that game against Newcastle. He gets the volley, and then he's he's do. This is where he starts this sort of two or three year period when he's having his own goal of the month competition uh, regularly um, because uh, there are sort of five or six absolute stunners from the Tissier's greatest hits littered through this particular episode. Yeah, and while um, United have already got 11 points clear after 13 games at the end of this month, which is amazing, really, just the, the way that they pushed on and the way that Ferguson was mm. so relentless, which is probably why he was so successful, that just didn't seem like anyone was stopping them at all. Watching this episode, I... I don't remember United starting the season so well. Um, and so they went like whatever, 12 or 14 points clear. I always, it, it sticks in my mind that every sort of year Man United won the league, they started off okay. They didn't start off poorly in any of them. They had their ups and downs and stuff. But it, to my mind, or the, you know, the, the, the frosted glass of memory, it seems that United always started off all right. But then from November, December, onwards that's when they pushed on mm. and this season seems to be a little bit of a reverse of that well yeah I mean I mean 92-93 they took a really real while to get into their stride it was Norwich and it was Villa that were the early sort of pacemakers and even more more sort of famous uh triumphs like the treble season for example they were still dropping quite a lot of points before sort of Christmas which is when they really um kicked in um but yeah it just seems like I think this United team especially is quite underrated because of the foreign players rule uh, in Europe. Mm-hmm. They got battered basically mm-hmm. by Barcelona because they could only play whatever it was, two or three for, um, foreign players out. So had to put, um, couldn't play Schmeichel. So just got absolutely ruined. Didn't the Republic of Ireland players also count as foreigners? Yeah. Which they should, of course, because they're not United mm-hmm. Kingdom. But 
you know, that's probably, that was probably a bone of contention to English clubs at the time because we would have never had, never faced such a rule previously. And, you know, to the outside world, a lot of people do lump the Republic of Ireland players in with, with British players. So you think Irwin and Keane are stripped from that side as much as Schmeichel, um, uh, Cantona, Kanchelskis. Mm. So is it any wonder they got thrashed by Barcelona? Uh, 4-0, was it? Yeah, 4-0. I think, yeah. I think I'm right in saying Les Seeley played in goal and just got absolutely yeah. <laughs> annihilated. Um, but there's there's a mm. couple of, like that team, like we were saying, in November, there's a great derby away at Main Road where they, they go come from behind, 2-0 down, and Roy Keane scores a, a real late winner and sort of dives mm-hmm. in uh, to sort of tap it in. And Main Road especially, when it was full as a ground, it was one of those sort of classic... Archibald Leach-esque sort of style, tight, tightly packed grounds like that, that I think now, especially mm. apart from Goodison, Old Trafford, Anfield, that sort of thing, it's sort of a sort of bygone era that. Yeah, it's a ground I never got to, Main mm. Road, um, but everybody talks about it in glowing terms as as a place where, you know, a great atmosphere and everything. Um, but it always seemed like a strange stadium to me because of, I think you mentioned about the stands, but I think they were sort of a mishmash of, one was from about the 80s or the 70s. Mm. One looked like the old far side. I, I can't remember the name. Was that the Kipax stand that was yeah. the... It turned Kipax into was this massive, great... Yeah. Was it behind the goal, was it? Mm. Yeah, so that was that was from one era. The other end was from another era. And then they redeveloped the far side of the pitch from where the TV cameras were. And they knocked that down, obviously, three or four years after it, after it was actually built, when they moved over to the... What, what was the city of Manchester Stadium at the time? So yeah, it was a, it was a funny old place, Main Road, and um, you know, for the majority of my life, it, Man City were a funny old team. Mm. Well, my um, <laughs> my parents used to live in Rochow when it was sort of all a bit rough around that area, and people used to say mm. to them. Uh, can we mind your car whilst the game's going on? And you basically just have to give the gags money because <laughs> if you wouldn't do it, they'd just smash it off. So that that was Manchester yep. around that time. Yep. Certain parts. It, it's sort of interesting how United took one direction and the city as well grew massively, but City just went totally the opposite way. Yeah, yeah. Um, United were the the side that, by design and by luck, um, really were the were the trailblazers and really grasped the the Premier League by the balls and, and you know, gave gave everybody the example to follow. Um, and Manchester City, like a lot of the bigger clubs, um, didn't didn't follow suit. And, of course, you, you, you can see how long it took them to, and what it took for them to get where they are now versus, you know, United have at least sustained it sometimes against the odds in more, in more recent years, I suppose. Mm. And the, you were talking earlier about sort of teams that, you know, sort of forgotten about. December starts brilliantly. It's Swindon one, um, QPR nil, which is a game you would just would never get mm. now in the Premier League. And then again, we're into another great handbrake turn. It's <laughs> a peace deal in mm. Northern Ireland, and Oliver Reed being cleared of GBH. <laughs> it's like, yes. On the same day, Swindon finally notched up their first Premiership win from six games. After strenuous negotiations, December saw the beginnings of a peace deal finally brokered in Northern Ireland. Oliver Reed was cleared of charges for grievous bodily harm. A lot of mud has been slung and it's very difficult to scrape it off. 
and Everton boss Howard Kendall left Goodison. Yeah, well, they weren't even the biggest pieces of news in that little seg- uh, segment there. So, because as like you say, there was a peace deal in Northern Ireland. Oliver Reed, uh, Oliver Reed got cleared of those charges. Uh, and Howard Kendall resigned after a home win against Southampton. You know, you think, well, OK, you know, Northern Ireland, it's been coming. You know, it's about time we got around the table. And Oliver Reed was a volatile character, so no surprise there. But Kendall resigning after a home win, what's gone on there? I mean, to me, that's the biggest bit of news. Mm. And uh, again, there's some more great games. That One of my favourites from this month was Spurs 3, Liverpool 3. And it had regret by New Order over the top of it. And I think this is what Premier League is does so well. There's some great songs in this episode, particularly it manages to just fit the right soundtrack. And there's nothing better than commentary over the top of uh, Peter Hook's sort of bass line. It's great. Spurs hosted a determined Liverpool and it was goals galore at White Hart Lane. I think very few shows uh, top what Premier League years do by matching a song to a certain scenario the one that does it and hits the well it's a, probably a bit too on the nose but the one that really is the king of matching music with um with what's on the tv is homes under the hammer yes but premier league is years is pretty close uh and when i was sick at this time and this is when i really first started going out in the pubs um now, so you've got this mix in this whole this whole show of the dance musics that you or, or pop dance music that you would hear in the pubs, in the nightclubs, and obviously on the radio. So your MP, people like M, groups like M People, um, uh, and a lot of that kind of um, early 90s dance scene, you know, Urban Cookie Collective and um, uh, D-Ream, all this sort of stuff. But 93, 94 is the point in British music when some established bands like Blur and the Charlatans um, were still producing good music and Pulp was starting to, They'd been around for a long time, but they were starting to be starting to get known. Then you get Suede being like the, the top band of the time. And then as we get later towards the end of the season, of course, and, and as you notice in here, you get Oasis coming out. And that was the 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 embryonic movement of what became known as uh, as Britpop. And those were the days when when I started really getting in, I started buying CDs. I had had a tape player before that and I got see I've got a CD player in this season as well so I was starting to buy um things like chemical is it chemical world and then no modern life is rubbish by yeah. blur suede album um the oasis singles before the album even came out uh, the charlatans pulp all these indie bands me and my mates were getting into at this time so this really is the crossover of going out on a friday night type music um and trying to cop off usually unsuccessfully and then when we'd be hanging around at each other's houses like playing whatever the latest tunes were and reading uh, enemy and finding out who the the next big bands were so all of the music in here for somebody my age 45 46 um is uh totally uh, evocative of of and the it's funny that the, the music goes with these games and goals um the obvious one, I know it's not Premier League years, of course, is I can't think of Matt Letizia without thinking of Life of Riley. Yeah. But certainly when you when you put some of these things together, it's like it, I'm transported back there like immediately when I when I when I watch this episode. Mm, well, I think the thing is with the Charlatans, like you say, especially, I think what you were saying about guitar music, I mean, their sort of transition from Some Friendly, which is sort of a dance acid house, sort of that mm-hmm. sort of 88 to 92. I hate using the word because it's crap, but Manchester, to, to quote a phrase, mm-hmm. um, into mm-hmm. their later stuff like the Charlatans, the Charlatans, um, and their other sort of more 
commercially successful albums, there is that shift from that dance music of the early 90s into what's known as Britpop. But it's interesting how that morphed into this bigger lad culture, but in this sort of 90, 94, mm. maybe getting a bit towards 95, there was still an infancy mm. and a, an innocence around it. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of factors at play that started that whole uh, lad culture, as you as you rightly pointed out. Not, uh, I was probably swept along with it as much as everybody else was, but I certainly don't certainly don't miss it. I mean, you still see it in everyday life now, but um, yeah, the past was a different place. We did different things. We did things differently there. Let's mm. put it that way. Well, United uh, to, to do a Georgie Thompson uh, handbrake. So United were fourteen points clear at this stage at Christmas, and uh, like you're saying about other teams, Blackburn and Leeds were second and third, and three of the so-called big six were actually in the, in the bottom half of the table. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, Leeds been champions, what, a couple of years earlier. Arsenal um, were sort of on a... I know they won the cup, the two cups the season before, but in terms of league challenges, at some point in this episode, they say Arsenal were getting their title challenge into gear. And I thought, you are Arsenal were never serious challenges. What, 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 what nonsense is this? Um but yeah, it, it, totally different time again because the big clubs weren't hoarding all the best players. Mm, well, that's what I mean. I mean, there's players in here like Nigel Clough, for example, a player that probably is a bit underestimated because he's in, in the shadow of his father. But he has a great game. In, there's another classic. It's Liverpool three, United three. United go three 0 up away at Anfield, and then Liverpool comes surging back. Razor Roddick getting an equaliser at the end. But Nigel Clough scoring two goals. It's like you, you forget almost players like him. If, towards the bigger picture, you know, you, you think of your Cantonais, you think of the other players that sort of were around at this time. He also was, was quite a big part of that Liverpool team. Yeah, and it's always a slight mystery why it didn't turn out better if him, for him there because he was kind of made for Liverpool. I know, again, Liverpool were in the transition period. Souness was the manager and it wasn't going well. Um, and they, they weren't sort of, sort of refreshing their team from the late 80s particularly well. And, and too many of them the older players had hung around too long, but Nigel Clough really was in the um, the Peter Beardsley, Kenny Dalglish mould. You know the, the sort of the, mm. the deep lying forward who who pulled the strings and stuff. And, and he was a really intelligent, clever player, particularly at Nottingham Forest. Um, but maybe it, again the the elevation in profile, the bigger club, the greater expectancy, maybe that had a lot to do with it. But also he did he was parachuted into a into a, um, a Liverpool side that really were taking you know, two steps forward, three steps back um, at that particular point. Well, I mean, another another player, like you mentioned Letizia earlier, but Andy Cole, this was his main standout season as well as a, a big montage of him scoring loads of goals for Newcastle. And without him especially, that whole Keegan project probably would never have really got off the ground. Um, yeah, you're right. But you can see what, of course, the following year, uh, Keegan shocked everybody and sold him onto Man United. But really, Andy Cole and anybody else who played up front for Newcastle or, or as an attacking player for Newcastle really owed everything uh, to Peter Beardsley. He was the one that pulled the strings and probably, uh, what, did Cole score something ridiculous like 45 goals or 50 goals or something that season? Um, probably 75% of them um, were, were owed to some flash of genius by, uh, by, uh, by the little man. Yeah, well, another thing as well, so... We have all this thing about the obviously it's a whole new ball game, got all these new sponsors, but there's still an innocence around certain local sponsors on the hoardings. And one of the ones that I liked at Carroll Road, especially, Scorpion Dry Lager <laughs> was all over the hoardings mm. at Carroll Road. And it's like it's random um how you get these these sort of sponsors just appearing. Um that you yeah. just never get nowadays because of how commercialized the Premier League has become. You're more likely to have a 
a cryptocurrency sponsor than a, a dry lager on the side of the pitch. Oh, absolutely. And I'm sure there would have been, as you, mean, you mentioned Norwich, there was, prob- there was probably, uh, I used to live in Norwich uh, when, a bit, when I was a kid, and I'm pretty sure there would have been, a, anybody who lives in Norwich will knows what Roy's of Wroxham is. And um, I'm, I'm pretty sure there would have been advertising all over Carrow Road for Roy's of Wroxham, a local sort of store that sold basically everything. Um, at Everton, you had various taxi firms and uh, Higson's Beer. I think they they... They were on there at that time, but they, like you say, like if you've got an advertising hoarding that's actually in English these days, that's quite a rarity, given uh, you know the the whole product be beamed around the world to what, to various um, nations. What I enjoyed about um, Cardiff getting promoted back into the Premier League a couple of years back under Warnock, and that was a slight throwback. They had Pyramid Hygiene as one of the hoardings, and mm. that's, that's just a great sponsor. That's that's you know uranium steels, your Joe Blogs. Pyramid hygiene is in that mould of just like mm. it may as well be on Pro Evo as like a just a mm. generic sponsor of one of the hoardings. <laughs> uh, Nick's Sportswear that mm. probably would have been there. Simod, all these brands and labels that just you know wouldn't even get a look in today, even if they still exist. So we're into February now, and uh, like you were saying about the uh, the Sky propaganda uh, that was being used earlier. The news section for this is pretty much dedicated to Sky News getting awards at the Royal Television Society. <laughs> it's a good mm. solid two or three minutes. And it's like, I'm not sure in March mm. or February, really, uh, in 1994, that was the biggest news story. <laughs> By its fifth birthday, the Sky Satellite Broadcasting Network was now a major force in the television industry. As Sky News scooped awards at the Royal Television Society for coverage that was second to none. No, no, but you know, maybe maybe the news was was storing it up for March because there are, there are some absolute crackers to come. I know that much. <laughs> well, we've also got some great um, crackers in the the winter. So we've got Southampton beating Liverpool four two, and it's in the snow, and there's a great orange mitre ball that's going all over the pitch, mm. and it's it almost looks a bit like. You know the sort of early football manager games that were still in 2D and mm. where there'd be like a snow effects on, it almost doesn't look realistic because you would never have that now with that amount of snow on the pitch. You just The game would get called off. Yep. Yeah, and it reminds me of um, Sabutio and mm. uh, where, you, where you used to be able to buy, uh, obviously, the various versions of the white ball, but then you could also get like the orange Adidas Tango ball and you'd play it, but it wouldn't, you know, how are you going to recreate the snow in Sabutio? But um, I sort of started collecting Sabutio a few years ago uh, and built, not to play, just to have, you know, like a stand and the, like the state, build a stadium with the pitch and that in my back room. And I was getting inspiration from people off, off the internet, not to sort of customize it a bit. And I saw that um, some guy had taken a bit like, you know, the referee's phone that they use yeah. for free kicks. He, he basically sprayed his full Sabutio pitch with this permanent, spray of some kind uh, and to have it like in a permanent you know semi-blizzard frozen pitch condition with the orange ball floodlights on it and all the rest of it so yeah to see to see that now you just even in the early 90s it was pretty rare to see a game continue you know the eight, 70s and 80s you know that was just bog standard you played on even if the pitch was like concrete but yeah to to see that now I, I, you know you just don't think you I don't think the players would even venture out the tunnel if they sort of Snowflake, um, it's like the, um, all on the ground. famous one is, I think, is it Chelsea against Tromso in the UEFA Cup, mm. where the, 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 the pitch is completely covered in snow, but the, they um carried on playing it. Talking of Chelsea, there's a great um 
great game here. Chelsea four Spurs three as well. It's uh, sort of a very much uh, action packed. It seemed like especially around this period, um, the players themselves weren't obviously the game was completely different then, but there seemed to be more of a chaotic energy to it. People players didn't seem to know how to defend as well. No, but the game wasn't as tactical. Mm. It was it was like uh, you know if you, the, the, most teams played a similar four four two type system back then. And, and the biggest input the managers had or the coaches had were just trying to make the players more motivated and just to say, go out there and have a go. Uh, you know, the tactic side of the game, especially um, when you got a lower-ranked team. Now, I mean, we've seen it for, for a long time now, haven't we, where a team in the bottom half of the table playing a, one of the top six would play a five at the back, four across midfield, and maybe one up front. And, and would would concede 75, 80% of possession um, willingly, hope for the best and see if they can score a counter-attack counter goal. In 1993-94, nobody deliberately played like that. You know, Swindon never didn't play against Manchester United like that. Um, Oldham didn't play Arsenal that way. You know, teams tried to defend like bastards and attack, attack, attack when they possibly could. So, yeah, no wonder you got four threes and then like you say def- with no tactics and no probably no real defensive coaching um you'd got a lot of four threes and three twos and but there was a lot of exciting games even the ones that were on a tuesday night and you thought oh am i gonna bother shall i watch emmerdale instead like ipswich against southampton or something like that or will i will I bother going to the pub it's raining outside um even a lot of them turned out as classics when you thought they'd end up just being nil nil well like Swindon, they took some absolute hammerings this season. So in March, they lost to Newcastle 7-1. August, they got <laughs> beat by Liverpool 5-0. But then, like you were saying, they were there towards the end of the title race, making it really interesting um, by holding United to a 2-2 draw and all of a sudden opening the door back up mm-hmm. again for Blackburn. Yeah, they lost 6-2 against Everton in mm-hmm. Mike Walker's first home league game. And um, they probably should have got a point. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the mad thing with that that sort of team, especially. I mean, it's probably inspired by the Glenn Hoddle sort of era they had of that, not to say total football, but it seemed to be a real forward-thinking attacking side. And once you start going 2 or 3-0 down and you begin to chase it, it, it's just too easy then, really. Yeah, yeah. Glenn Hoddle was never known for, um, for his teams playing in that kind of, um, you know, have-what-we-hold mentality. Yeah, and there's a... There is a great handbrake turn in March. So we go from Chelsea against Spurs and then we're into Fred West's house being excavated <laughs> and the IRA attacking Heathrow. It's tough at the bottom and we're down in that sort of dogfight now. We've got to work our way out of it. Headlines in March saw the House of Horrors at Cromwell Street, former home of Fred West, excavated in an attempt to discover the true extent of his crimes. Terrorism was again at the forefront of the nation's conscience. Mortar attacks on Heathrow by the IRA, highlighting the weakness of national security. And England got off to a winning start. David Platt captaining the England side with Terry at the helm to a defeat of Denmark. Yeah, there's a lovely shot, isn't there, of, of, of Fred West Place being boarded up, followed by um, followed by literally a burnt-out car with the pipes for the pipe bombs that attacked Heathrow Airport. Um, but that Georgie, Georgie sort of softens the blow slightly at the end of that. 
and you know she makes it all nice. She puts, put, she smooths out the, the the difficult waters by saying that at least Terry Venables got off to a nice winning start <laughs> uh, in his first manage man, you know, first game manager in England. So you know that you know swings and roundabouts. Mm. And uh, another thing I noticed, people forget them like George Best's early um, Sky career as a pundit. There's, there's a nice clip of him defending Eric Cantona and that early Soccer Saturday panel of him, Rodney Marsh. It's, it's so innocent mm. to see Sky in that phase of a small studio with them sat around because obviously Soccer Saturday now, everyone knows what it is and it's become a sort of behemoth of, of football media. But back then, it really felt like they were almost getting anyone on as a, as a pundit. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it, it had that old school um, sort of they were just sitting around the table in a pub kind of vibe to it rather than they were it was an exhibition for people to watch. It was like you were sort of earwigging on a conversation of, you know, famous ex-footballers. And it is funny to watch George Best now um, when he was a pundit, because you almost kind of forget that. Um, it's just like the, the two the two careers of George Best. You know, you had him as a, as a I wouldn't say the enfant to the Reaper, but the, the fifth Beatle, George mm. Best, when he was playing for United, of course. Then it all sort of, he sort of vanished for about 15 years. And then, as you say, came on Sky as a regular panellist, um, often he, I remember him being quite not disagreeable in a bad way. He very much had his own opinion and his own thoughts on games and, and players. And he, he didn't just go with what everybody else said. He often had a counterpoint to everybody else. And I wouldn't say he was, he was controversial in the way that pundits are controversial now, but, um, he certainly didn't just, you know, go along with what everybody else said. Oh, I felt, felt that way at least. And, and you wonder how much of that was, um, uh, whether how much of that was George in, in reality or whether he'd just been told, you know, just say something else. I don't know. But yeah, it's just, it's funny seeing George Best and obviously it's tragic the way things turned out for him over the last sort of 10 years of um, 10 years of his life. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that because everyone's having to go at Eric Hansen now because he got sent off against uh, Swindon for stamping and then he got sent off again yeah. versus Arsenal and the panel's saying, you know, all the stuff that you'd expect Cantona to get criticism for, for being a, you know, an overseas player, not understanding the English game or whatever. And George Press is like, well, actually, I, I don't think he should have got set off against Arsenal. And like, he was just mm-hmm. so he kicked out. And it's interesting that, but United's lead gets reduced to four points. Come March the 5th, they drop points to Swindon and Blackburn starts sort of picking up again. And all of a sudden, there's a title race back on. Yeah, uh, I, I do recall um, Blackburn certainly making a charge. It kind of coincided, coincided with Shearer coming back because didn't he get really bad injury in the mm. first season of the Premier League? And it, it he was out for basically a year. Then, then of course, he came back, got into into the form that we remember Shearer for, particularly the Blackburn form when he was probably only second to original Ronaldo as the best forward in the world in the 90s. And he was absolutely unstoppable. Um and as you say, that coincides. And, and Blackburn, Blackburn were a very, very simple team. Get the ball wide, cross it in, Shearer, Newell, uh, and then later on in, in time, Sutton would be the one. Uh, and they played it really, really effectively. And um, yeah, they put the willies up United. But again, maybe just as we see later on in the season, you know, the, um, they gave themselves maybe a bit too much to do, um, knowing that, as you said, there were no, I know there were no easy games in the Premier League, but um yeah, there was there was a lot. The, the field was a lot more tightly packed than it is these days. So you, you know, you didn't always get an easy ride at places like Coventry or Oldham. Well, they, they gave themselves a good chance. I mean, by April, 
they'd taken it back to three points. United dropped points again away to Wimbledon. And they got a result. They beat United 2-0. Um, mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, you're thinking with United's history, I mean, obviously 91-92 completely threw that away because of fixture congestion and, and other things as well. And even 92-93, again, they were dropping points. It, the, the famous Sheffield Wednesday game where Steve Bruce scored. Mm-hmm. But there was always, obviously I wasn't around then, but there was always a feeling because of how long United had gone without winning a title before 93 that they were just never going to do it, similar to, to Liverpool and similar to City when they, they won it in 2012. This is mm. the sort of beginning of Ferguson just being able to grind out results. But even then, you know, these people almost take for granted how difficult it was for him to consistently win titles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I remember at the time watching that 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 Blackburn win over United at, at Ewood Park. And I think that was the only moment I can remember where it seemed like United might be in in a bit of trouble because as you said they'd had a bit of a wobble hadn't they leading up to that game with quite a lot of points dropped Blackburn just kept on grinding out results and that one particularly the way Shearer sort of made a mug of Pallister for the second goal I think it was um, you know United suddenly looked really really nervous um, and that was the point where you thought this is where they could they could possibly do it but um, you know it was great to see Dalglish and Ferguson going at it again well, there's, there's another great game as well. This is what we're saying um, about sort of random teams. Norwich 4, Southampton 5. But this only got like 20 seconds. I was, I was watching it. Mm. I was like, hang on a second. 5-4 <laughs> like, four, mm. four, and you've shown like two goals from it. It's, it's, it's interesting, the, the policy of that. Yeah, especially when the, there, there were games that meant nothing to anybody whatsoever. They got equal billing. I think there was a Leeds-West Ham game in somewhere in the show, and there was a Sheffield United against somebody, Norwich perhaps, where somebody scored a good goal, all right, but it didn't, it wasn't consequential. Like you say, this one, didn't it swing like, it was like 2-1, 3-2, 2-4-3, 5-4, like it just kept going back and forward, and it was really close to the end of the season and was, it was pivotal to, to Southampton staying up. Um, yeah, there, there's some odd. Maybe that's probably just because you know they had more footage than others on on certain games. I don't know. Well, Spurs for um, Spurs three Everton two in October. I counted mm. the minutes on that, and it got like three and a half four minutes. It was like an extended <laughs> highlight, basically. And it's obviously yeah. the games yeah. that Sky had. They've got more camera angles that they can show from, and there's certain commentary as well that sounds like it's been sort of dubbed over. You know, your Peter Brackley mm. style of. Oh no! <laughs> mm-hmm. Sort of like it's been almost made for like a gambling website. Yeah, yeah, weird. You don't know what's going through their mind. I mean, I was I was shocked actually. I mean, I've been what you know. This is the type of program I've dipped in and out of. You know, when you, you know, you've got nothing else, to, you, you find one when you're sort of scooting through the channels and you find it, and then you watch maybe twenty minutes of it, and then the thing you want to watch starts. Well. Uh, yeah, I've been doing that for a long time. I, mean, I, I don't know why, but I thought Premier League years has been going on for a long time. And, and you know, these things were probably made in like 2012 and that. And I was shocked to find out that this episode was made in 2003. Yeah, no, no. I mean, that's the thing. Premier League years now, um, they've they've sort of remastered them a bit into sort of widescreen. But all of the stuff's in mm. 4-3 aspect ratio. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 completely weird. And also Georgie Thompson, remember she was, you know, almost um omnipresent on Sky, mm. same as Kirsty Gallagher was roughly that time. I, I couldn't tell you the last time I saw 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 or heard her voice on anything. I mean, what what happened to I her? I think she's might be married to Ben Ainsley, the sailor. 
Oh, right. Okay. I think, but I, I'm not, I think, I think that's what happened to her. I think she might've gone to America or somewhere and come back. Um, but it's like, um, like Charlotte Jackson as well. There's, there's sort of that period of Sky Sports News presenter um, who's mm. weirdly enough married to Chris Coleman now. Um, mm. But it, it seems like they've moved away from that slightly. Yeah, she was one of the original, um, when Sky started employing young mm. professional, but also not, not bad looking young female presenters to be she was she was kind of a trailblazer in that, that aspect wasn't she for sky and of course they've they've very much continued that into into the modern day yeah well and again so we're getting towards the end of march and this is the montage that you run about earlier we've got always look on the bright side of life there's a yes. andy gray getting kicked in the balls with a football yeah then we're into robbie fowler taking the piss out of keys's jackets and he's you know he's sort of taking it well while sort of like crying inside and then ian dark makes this joke about oh. getting a player's degree wrong and then he starts joking about killing himself <laughs> Is it maths or English literature? I'm not sure, but... Uh, well, I hope it's maths if he knows his angles. <laughs> he's got a degree in uh, uh, English literature, I think. <laughs> All right, I will... He's my hero. Where's the Where's the, the, the noose? Darky, come back. Is there a pipe? Darky! <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Different times change, very, very different times. And, you know, the, um, uh, the I'm sure there's a, there's a point where I'm sure it's Shane Ritchie is in there with like one of these, you know, things you can, you pretend it's an animal and you stick mm. it on your leg. And I'm sure he's wearing, is it South End kit? It's like really horrible, flecky blue and yellow kit. And I'm, I'm sure he's got like a dog puppet humping his leg in there. You've got, you've got, of course, Merson, who, who of course, within a year of this, uh, went into rehab for drink and drugs and everything else, famously doing his, you know, chucking pints down his neck thing. Um, at the, and after the cup, which is one of the cup finals in 93, you know, that we all thought that was hilarious at the time. But of course, really, really sort of sad way that that story's turned out down the last sort of 25 years since. Um, the usual sort of amusing on goals and refs falling over. Um, you've got guys showing up. Uh, this is very typical of the early 90s as well. You get it now still, but nowhere near as you did as much as you did then when football became football supporting went through a period where everybody was happy to go mm. to the football. There was very little violence or threat in the stadium, certainly compared to the eighties. And there was joviality away fans could sit in the home end and they would be absolutely in, not in fear of their life or being chucked out by a steward. And then, so then you've got a lot of people would show up at games in like stupid wigs um, and painting their faces. This is all very brand new in sort of 93, 94. But there's a, there's a spot, and this this totally dates this particular episode in the season, where you've got guys in um, the Harry Enfield scouser moustaches and yeah. uh, wigs, giving it the calm down, calm down thing. Uh, and then you've got like four lads rocking up to a game in lobby costumes. I mean, that just absolutely screams 1993, 94, as much as anything else, any of the football that's in this episode. Yeah, well, we're getting into May then, and uh, you know, Blackburn give it a good go, but they go away to Coventry and ultimately just come up short. And there's a great uh, clip. I think it's Steve Bruce House um, and the United players mm-hmm. sat around sort of celebrating. Um, and then we go yeah. back to to Old Trafford, and 
you know it's it's interesting there's um a drone a sort of drone shot of old trafford and it sort of looks over the top of the city and it really struck me how much manchester has, has changed it just mm. as a city in that time period because the whole skyscraper is sort of where deansgate is now and beefham tower and all of that it's so empty and you can see how desolate it was as a city because there's just nothing there. I mean, I know there was the whole uh, factory thing and all of that stuff, but that was still very much born out of being put into managed decline, basically. Yeah. And it just, you know, you could have a whole podcast dedicated to um, what's influenced the change in British cities in the last 25, 30 years. Um, But certainly Manchester and the Mm. success of, both football teams now, if you look at the whole of the Premier League time, um, has com- contributed significantly to how much Manchester, uh, the environment of Manchester has changed within that time. I, I live not far from Newcastle and, and the difference between, and I used to work round the corner from Newcastle Stadium in an old industrial unit um, and the difference in that, the area. And you remember, you've got to remember that Newcastle Stadium is right slap bang in the middle yeah, of the yeah, city yeah. centre. The, the change in the last 20 years between what it was like then, not just the stadium, which of course went just after this season, went through a massive redevelopment program, but the area around this ground, it, it, it's like night and day. It's kind of like, it, it could be like a small area of Dubai or something now with all hotels and restaurants and bars. And as you say, skyscrapers, Manchester's very similar. Um, yeah, just, it's that time when football has more influence on our society than it ever did or was ever really meant to. And it's because of, you know, this worldwide product that is only ever football. And then, you know, it gets going around the world and look at it now, you know, all this investment that's coming in, it's just, like I say, it's the past is just so weird to look at sometimes. And you think it's difficult to explain to somebody who wasn't there, the Mm. difference between what it was like and what it's like now just from every day driving past through it on the bus or anything like that? I mean, I remember being out in Newcastle in sort of a few months ago. And um, I remember I was in, I was in a place called the Dog and Parrot, which you might know. Um, it's yes. sort of like, like, a, like a pub, so it turns into a club after a certain time. And there was a guy in there and he was allowed in and he was wearing a Crystal Palace replica shirt and he'd been in away. And I'm thinking to myself, like, football now has become so synonymous with society and so accepted that, if you wore a football shirt to a nightclub <laughs> then mm-hmm. or before, you just wouldn't have been allowed in, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Completely, completely different time. And it was, I don't know, like it did that, that, um, I don't want to say anesthetizing of being a football supporter, that, that chilled out, much more chilled out vibe that there was at football grounds. But that, that wasn't imposed on anybody. I think we all, as football fans then, we sort of took it upon ourselves to just relax a bit. Now, of course, it, it's it's all sort of it's all gone mad in a different kind of way than it was in the eighties. It's you know the, the the pressure of getting hit up about it in the crowd. It's 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 there. You can feel the anger, the frustration, but it's all for different reasons than it was in the seventies and the eighties. But there was a period that probably the whole nineties, I would say, when the the atmosphere in the football stadiums was again, it was really really totally different. And uh, you know, I don't. It wasn't. It wasn't manufactured. It just. It just happened. And uh, so we're going then towards the last couple of games of the season. Uh, United relegate Southampton with that two 0 win, and then we have this amazing last day of the season with obviously Everton mm. 
famously staying up right at the death, beating Wimbledon 3-2, mm. sending Sheffield United yeah. down with Oldham and Swindon. I think this was the first, one of the first times properly. I mean, we've had it the season before with, with Oldham staying up quite uh, dramatically with a 4-3 win, but the sort of relegation televised, televised Sundays, that sort of thing. Sky mm. were really good at, at selling this as a product. Yeah, well, this wasn't a relegation Sunday thing, mm. but I think this probably had a massive um, a massive bearing on because it was the following season when they did that, they shifted the games, whether they did it before the season or through the season, I don't remember, but when they shifted the final games of the season to the Sunday mm. and they had multiple matches on, because I remember flicking between the West Ham Man U game and um, Liverpool-Blackburn, obviously, when, it, when the two were going for the title on the final day. But I think it was a consequence of the... Because Swindon were already down, on this season, Oldham were all but down. Um, they need a miracle really to stay up, but they were, but they were still technically um, capable of staying up. Uh, you had Everton with third bottom who needed to win and others to go their way. And then you had Southampton, you had Ipswich and Sheffield United. So five, four slash five teams who could have gone down on the final day. Uh, and as you say, the roller coaster ride for Everton in particular, certainly from my perspective, um, and the Sheffield United game that they played away at Chelsea was massive and um, yet it seemed to me like it, almost like they'd run out of time uh, or run out of tape when they were making this episode and I don't think they dedicated anywhere because I you know this was the for me I think okay United there was a bit of a title scramble towards the end of the season but they they were never I don't think they were really in that much danger of not winning it that's the title there weren't like top four places to play for so that for me then and again maybe this is the effort buy-ins bias but the 1993-94 season for me if you want to just pick one thing out it has to be the last day uh drama but particularly at goodison but in involving all these teams because it it it, uh, it zigzagged all around you know southampton ipswich they were only ever like one goal away from going down um at various points that in that afternoon and and i just you know it's it's what it, they seem to have done in this episode is they take it a bit from I guess it must be like the Christmas show or the 1994 Christmas summary of the seat of the previous season and just picked a wee bit out of that and dropped it into the Premier League years here you know well, it's, and, it's and really just bizarre. They done it's like a like it's like it's just like a black and white montage like someone's died basically yeah. and like yeah, oh yeah, Everton just... stayed up and it's like well, yeah, well, yeah. hang on a minute like <laughs> this needs like six minutes at least it was a dark day for Oldham's Joe Royal as his team suffered a 2-0 loss to Spurs, which sent them back to the first division. To sort of go like you said, they, they, they gave they gave that Tottenham Everton game back in September or October, probably four or five times as much as they gave this most probably the most dramatic final day um, relegation scrap that probably have been in the Premier League, and they just skirt over it. Um, like they did when, you know, Ayrton Senna dying or, you know, digging up Fred West's back garden. Well, there was only three points in it between Spurs in 15th and Sheffield United in 20th. And because there was still 22 teams then as well, um, mm -hmm. there was a lot more, it feels a lot more, almost what the championship is now with that unpre unpredictability. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Any, any, and a lot, of, a lot more team. Now we sort of see the same teams in trouble every year. But again, back then, um, you know, there was a bit of chopping and changing from season to season about who, you know, and there was always one or two big sides who were uh, who were threatened um, in those first early years of the Premier League. 
Yeah, and United win it in the end by eight points on 92 points, which is still quite a high um, total for a, a side to win. Um, and then we go into this bizarre closing montage to obviously United lifting the trophy and winning the FA Cup as well and doing the double and everything surrounding Brian Robson and his, his last game. But the montage is, we have more than a feeling by Boston, which is, okay, understandable. But then when a hero comes mm. along, then into Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles, and then back into the end of Boston again. Back into Boston. <laughs> it makes no yeah. sense. <laughs> it, it doesn't. It doesn't. And again, you would have thought the premise of the Premier League is, in terms of the, from the musical aspect, would be to at least... Uh, I know you might not be able to pick the particular vibe of a song or the title of a song or whatever, but to pick a, a soft rock song from the seventies, um, was it Mariah Carey? Was it that did the hero thing? Yeah, that one. Okay, that one fits. What was the other one? Here comes um, the sun by the Beatles. <laughs> here comes the sun. Okay, yeah, something from the sixties. A live and, and also a very famously Liverpool band. Mm. Not even a Manchester band. If you're gonna, you know, show uh, show the season highlights for Manchester United, you could have at least chosen the Charlatans or. The Happy Mondays or well, whoever. Quite, I mean, it's, it's 1994. I mean, like, <laughs> it's not as if this is like whatever, yeah. 2003 and Britpop and everything else has died out. I and mean, there's no bands from that time and everyone's listening to like whatever R&B. That there is quite a bit of scope yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wonder if uh, maybe those, uh, you know, that they got a good deal on some of the, some of the rights for those particular songs versus well, like, yeah, um, you know, some of the ones that... Weirdo by the Charlatans in 92, 93 is included about... I think it's like four times throughout the episode. They just play like the first <laughs> 20 seconds of it. <laughs> yeah, well, didn't they used to... Do you remember Goals on Sunday? Maybe yes. the Charlottes did them a good deal because the Goals on Sunday theme theme tune or intro mm. tune or the tune that played between the breaks was um, I Never Want an Easy Life if he and me were ever to get there. Mm. That was... that was Or was that on Soccer AM? It, that, they used that for most of the 90s, I seem to remember. Well, there's a few bands like that. I mean, Kasabian, obviously, are the, the, the ones that everyone seems to have. I mean, they did the intro for Super Sunday for a while. Uh, they just seem to be on all the montages. But there seemed to be a sort of um, type of rock group that were always designed for Sky a bit later than this. But bands like Purescence, mm. for example, like this feeling um, was used so many times in so many adverts and everything like that. It, it's almost like Sky were, were after this sort of mm. I say, it was sort of like post Britpop British guitar music. Yeah, or maybe, you know, maybe sometimes they write a song with a deliberate um mm. flavor in mind. You know, if if you can write a song about the weather or Christmas, you can you're minted for life, aren't you? Or if you can think of a song that sounds good over the top of a, you know, goals of the month selection, then you're never gonna go short. It's like the the people who did the theme music for Soccer I Am, um, that riff. But I, I don't know who that band is. I don't think many people do. But for years, every Saturday morning, they had the same riff of their song. They must have got paid so much royalties for that for like a solid seven or eight mm. years. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, the Charlatans have obviously uh, had a great career in that. But have they yeah. ever made as much money as they have done through Weirdo? I don't think I don't think so. Well, that sort of brings the episode um, to a close. We sort of go into the the Sky Sports credits and the, the ha-ha-has, and that's sort of where it ends to sort of get the, the Sky copyright montage up. Um, and that's it. But um, thanks for coming on, Mark. Where where can people find you? Um, they can find me on Twitter at that Mark Godfrey, but it's probably pointless following me because I don't really do much on there. Um, but at the moment, I'm um, 
producing, co-hosting the Brian McClare podcast, which is great fun to do with obviously Brian McClare, ex of Manchester United, who uh, who actually pops up with the goals in this particular episode we've been discussing. Um, so yeah, you can follow us uh, at Brian McClare Pod, and yeah, that's probably the best way to find out what I'm up to. <laughs>